0: Welcome to Local Motion, a weekly KBNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. I'm Cassie Canoust. Today we join Maeve Conran, the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition's Managing Editor for a regional news roundup. On this Local Motion, we'll hear about why some people are choosing a living Christmas tree this holiday season. We'll also visit the Ute Mountain Ute Park in Southwest Colorado. Maeve shares a story on the pushback against efforts to ban children's books in Garfield County. And finally, We'll learn more about pedestrian dignity for KPNF and from the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, its local motion.
1: Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today, we'll pay a visit to the Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Park in Southwest Colorado.
2: You can see a kiva right here, wherever the Pueblo's left, and this kiva's still sitting on the floor.
1: Then we'll hear about the ongoing attempts to
3: ban books. And you can't just move books from children or grievously restrict their access to them. It's unconstitutional. Why some
1: people are choosing a living Christmas tree this year.
3: You
4: know, they want to have something alive that's they're not, they're not killing, right? They feel, bad. well, I would feel bad about cutting down a tree and then just throwing it out.
1: And pedestrian dignity. Why one Colorado man was inspired to advocate for walkable cities after his own walk across the country.
3: Are we willing to decenter single occupant car driving and that that's that's in front of us. Are we willing?
1: From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Park is almost double the size of neighbouring Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado, with dozens of unexcavated archaeological sites, cliff dwellings, pottery sherds, and art on canyon walls. Chris Clements of KSJD brings us this audio postcard from the park with an interpretive guide who leads a group on a tour of what he calls downtown Mesa Verde.
2: My name is Ricky. Nelson Hayes Sr. Uh, I'm a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member. My mom is from Ute Mountain here, but my dad is a Southern Cheyenne from Hemant, Oklahoma. But I was born here in Toya Cortez, Colorado at the old hospital and uh, been a local here all my life. You can see a kiva right here. Whatever the Pueblo's left, and this kiva's still sitting on the floor. This site hasn't been excavated. So most of the surface sites run along up that way, along that dirt road, up to 60 to 80 room blocks. They still live like this, the They still do these kiva ceremonies. You see a lot of the black stone, basalt, axe heads, mallets, turquoise, abalone, seashell, turquoise, even cotton had to be brought in. So they were coming in from Mississippi River, Montana, Mm -hmm. California, Mexico. People were coming 500 miles to here to trade with the Pueblos. Even when they moved to Santa Fe, now the world still comes to see them at Santa Fe Indian Market because of their pottery, their jewelry. This one here we call Chief Jack House is a Hogan site Uh, He was born around 1888 passed away around 1972 Uh, He was the one that proposed the tribal park here back around 1969 Wanted to put 125,000 acres away Uh, when he proposed that was a lot of tribal members that didn't like that idea They didn't want this area open up to the public They wanted to keep it Clothes, just tribal members and stuff. They defaced his drawings here. Mm-hmm. Put a bullet hole there, just burned down this whole that was over there. Mm-hmm. But this is the red paint here. Uh, see the deface? But right here you can see Grandma. See, she's she Jack's, my uncle. So they've been using this alcove for a long time. Pablo Jutes. So that they use the same paint. So, this is the uh, original trail we're walking on. And this one here we call Lion House. So, most of the wall's gone. You can see it was enclosed. This one, they came through the side. Original no plaster on the wall. You might notice the black, then the plaster on top of it. They call it a primer. What they'll do is it's sticky. And when they plaster the wall, that black primer helps keep the plaster on the wall. So this wall over here has been plastered nine times. They left this to remind you, you were prayed for. That's why that handprint's up there. I was here. Carry on, soldier. (laughs) That's all he's telling you. He's having a good day. All these wood, 900-year-old wood, cut and chopped by the Pueblos themselves, still sitting here. We got one more to go to called Eagle's Nest. That one's got a, a 28-foot ladder to it.
3: I mean, can you look down? Did you hear a deep breath, yeah? I
2: heard that deep breath. You can see this Kiva right here. This is that red, white interior, white, red triangle. Migration story, following the blue star. Can you imagine the first fire here when they first finished it? First so, fire, first one. You know, I'm gonna sing a song here. while we hit out, these alvers, these ones, they like it with children sing to them. Makes their heart feel good that they didn't forgive them. We gotta remember why they came here. Who's them for themselves? Yeah, 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 Be careful, just keep praying, even though we see these hard things, good things are coming, beautiful things. That's why I just wanted to say that, and I'm Ricky Hayes, signing off from Toyota Colorado.
1: (laughs) Thanks to KSJD's Chris Clements for that report. Across the country, libraries are becoming a battleground for culture wars with children at the centre. It's happening in rural Garfield County on Colorado's western slope, with people litigating what materials kids should and shouldn't have access to, citing children's safety as the reason for their actions. But Garfield County libraries say they won't restrict access to books. Instead, they'll prioritise meeting the needs of their community's children – by providing a safe, fun environment for them to learn. Carolyn Yanis of Aspen Public Radio has more.
4: Yeah, that
2: one whole lot
4: of
2: At
0: the Glenwood Springs Branch Library, a couple dozen kids and adults are using kid-friendly plastic needles, thick embroidery thread, and safety scissors to assemble little felt stuffed dinosaurs from kids. In short, it's a typical Wednesday afternoon with the Spark program, designed to spark kids' imaginations in a fun, safe, social environment. Seven-year-old Graham Aguirre and his mom, Ashley, are working on a mini T-Rex plush. Ashley is holding the felt pieces together while Graham goes to town with the needle.
2: The unders are under. No.
1: They're but
0: maybe it's under to over to instead the of the over under. It's either one. <laughs> she said it's Graham is homeschooled, and the Spark program helps fill in some of the gaps. Ashley says this month's theme of November has tied in perfectly with Graham's current studies about geology. And over the past year, Graham has enjoyed a variety of library programming. Remember when they brought the birds? They brought in birds. Yeah. And it was really cool. Huge one, eagle that we learned about that she hunts. As Graham and other kids craft, and adult patrons read, work on computers, or simply warm up by the library's fireplace, it's tough to imagine that this and other county libraries have served as the battleground for a fierce culture war for months. This past summer, Trish O'Grady of Rifle started a petition to prevent children from accessing a pair of Japanese manga graphic novels with age warnings shelved in the adult section. Back in September, during a library board of trustees meeting, she read from the petition, asking the library to keep these books in a separate room under lock and key, and for librarians to see ID before allowing them to be checked out.
4: If these requirements are
3: not met,
4: then we request all materials of the aforementioned warning be removed from the library inventory.
0: After O'Grady challenged these books, library staff read them all the way through and determined they were shelved correctly in the adult section. They also agreed that they would not be keeping books under lock and key or having librarians check ID. Jamie LaRue is the executive director of the library district.
3: There is no library in the United States that does that, and in fact, no child has been uh, has been reading these.
0: LaRue and the library district hosted a public forum in October, where the vast majority of attendees were against restricting access to books. During his presentation, LaRue pointed out that the library can't restrict access to these materials anyways.
3: Minors also have First Amendment rights. And you can't just remove books from children or grievously restrict their access to them. It's unconstitutional.
0: Even after both library officials and the library's volunteer board of trustees made their decision to keep the manga books in the adult section, O'Grady and her supporters continued to speak out. One even wrote a letter in a local newspaper calling on librarians to be arrested for, quote, knowingly transferring or attempting to transfer obscene matter to minors. Emily Drabinski is the president of the American Library Association. She says this kind of language is demoralizing for library professionals, and it misses the point of what public libraries are doing for children. So if you want your children to read during the summer and to have access to all kinds of reading materials of interest, if you care about early childhood literacy, then your library is the place that's making that possible. Here in rural Garfield County, Red Milbury is one of the people doing that work. Make sure everybody knows before you finish sewing, you need to leave a big enough gap to put the stuffing in. They're the youth we'll services the coordinator sewing, okay? at the Glenwood Springs so branch and run the Glenwood Spark program. Librarians are set up in such a unique way because we have the ability to design our lessons and what we want to provide to the community based on the community's needs. To address those many needs, the Garfield County Public Library District offers help applying for jobs, free health screenings through community partners, and conversation groups for people to practice both their English and Spanish. Drabinsky says Garfield County is among many rural library districts that fill in the gaps, providing things like broadband internet and even access to clean drinking water in some areas. 30% 30% of public libraries offer some kind of partnership that provides food aid to people in their communities. So you've got big projects like that. And then I saw a small project in Ames, Iowa, where the library had a tray of reading glasses that you could borrow if you
4: forgot yours at home.
0: It's this kind of critical work that keeps library staff fighting for their communities. Millberry says bitter objections to some books and programming is something they're learning to deal with, and they know it won't be going away anytime soon but they believe in the work they're doing. Your wealth means nothing here. We provide services to all. And I think that's the best thing about libraries is it's the great equalizer. Everybody has the same footing here. And Millberry loves being someone that all families, including folks like Graham and Ashley Aguirre, can rely on to have fun and learn in a safe space. I'm <laughs> trying to be a part of the dinosaur? He is. He is one with the <laughs> dinosaur. That's what we want. Here, he was a T Rex in another life. He was sewing himself into the dinosaur. (laughs) For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Caroline Yanez.
1: You're listening to the regional roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. For those who celebrate Christmas, it's time to pull out the boxes of ornaments and string lights, untangle everything and hang them onto something. For many, that something is a freshly cut tree. Others love the convenience of artificial trees, which never need water and don't drop their needles. But there's another option. Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Benita Lee has more.
4: As we get closer to the holidays, uh, to Christmas, more people will start uh, coming in and grabbing Christmas trees.
5: That's Corey Rockefello, assistant manager at the tree farm. This Longmont nursery bustles with activity in spring, summer, and fall. It's quieter this time of year, except for the small work trucks, tilling fields, and moving trees. But with Christmas approaching, customers will start checking out trees with an eye to the long-term future.
4: We still get a lot of calls and a lot of folks that are looking for cut trees, which we don't do at all.
5: The tree farm hasn't sold cut trees in years, partly because it demands more labor than they employ during the low season. But they do sell live trees in pots ready to plant, even in winter. Rockefello says the trend towards live Christmas trees is gradually becoming popular.
4: A lot of people ask if they can rent them, which we don't do, but uh, is a good idea. Yeah, if, if you've uh, got the space in your yard, I think it's awesome.
5: According to Rockefeller, their live Christmas tree customers are seeking something different.
4: I think it's the experience more than anything. You know, they want to have something alive that's they're not, they're not killing, right? They feel, not, well, I would feel bad about cutting down a tree and then just throwing it out. So this way you're actually saving a tree and it's more expensive than a cut tree is, but then you get that tree in your yard for, you know, the rest of your life, ideally.
5: People who are used to cut trees know that they need constant watering.
4: It's on life support, right? So that water is its, its life um, life source, and once you stop watering it, it's gonna die.
5: But for the live trees, it's a different situation.
4: For living trees, I'd recommend giving it a really good drink a couple of days before bringing it into the house, and then you bring it in and then it's good until you plant it, and then once you plant it, another really, really good drink.
5: But that doesn't mean live trees don't have special care requirements.
4: You can't have a living tree inside for quite as long. It's the one major drawback to them. You can have them inside for five to seven days, probably. Any longer than that, you run the risk of them breaking dormancy, starting to grow.
5: Rockefeller says living trees need to stay cool to keep them in their natural winter dormant state.
4: Like an uh, unheated garage is a perfect place to store them. A little bit before Christmas, you bring it inside. um, Ideally, you know, away from uh, major heat sources, Um, windows, you know, if you can keep the sun off of them a little bit, that can help too. And then shortly after Christmas, you know, plant them outside.
5: He suggests digging a hole before Christmas to get it ready for planting the tree after the holidays. When picking a tree, there are lots of things to consider. It's kind of like getting a puppy. You want to make sure you know how big it's going to get.
4: Really the big thing is uh, having the space in your yard. If you've got a small yard I'd steer you away from like the Austrian pines, the standard Colorado spruce, those are gonna get big. Whereas there are varieties of trees that are smaller. So there's uh, Montrose spire white spruce that works really well in a smaller area. Um, there's a couple of pines that stay skinnier, a couple of blue spruces, the columnar blue spruce stays, you know, it's gonna get 10 to 15 foot wide after 30 years.
5: And if you like your trees festive, Rockefeller says, bring on the holiday
4: cheer. Decorate it the same way you would have even a fake tree. I mean, the, the branches are still going to be flexible and pliable when you get it. You know, don't go too crazy. If you break off a couple of branches, that's no big deal. But um, yeah, just the same as, as any other Christmas tree.
5: Rockefeller says he knows at least one couple who comes in every year to buy a living Christmas tree.
4: They know the deal. They keep it inside for the right amount of time they're caring for it the right way and then they get it in the ground, you enjoy it for the Christmas and then you'll have that memory for years in the future.
5: If you want to start a new tradition this year, a live tree may be the way to go. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Benita Lee.
1: We round out today's show by taking a walk. Jonathan Stoles is the author of a Walk, Slow down, wake up and connect at one to three miles per hour. It tells the story of his own cross-country walk in 2010 and how it inspired him to become an advocate for more walkable communities. He started the group Walk to Connect, which is now a programme of America Walks and the Pedestrian Dignity Project. I met Jonathan in Denver to take a walk around a decidedly unwalkable neighbourhood. Well, we're here in Denver. We're like Colorado 7th. And so let's take a walk and and see this in action.
3: Let it unfold. That's right.
1: (laughs) How would you describe Denver in terms of walkability as a city?
3: (laughs) So, you know, compared to other cities, there are a lot of good things happening here. There's a lot of people paying attention to mobility outside of just moving cars. and by the way, disclaimer: This is not car shaming. That's not what this is. You drive a car, don't feel weird. This is just, this is inviting and centering mobility in other forms. Millions of people can't drive a car, and so how are we how are we creating transportation systems for those people? And so, as Denver, as a, as a city for Denver, it it feels it's it's ahead in some ways. But my main My main filter around is a city walkable or not are the arterial roads that are outside of the urban core. The larger arterial roads that have the most frequent bus stops, that have public transit, that have the most frequent bus routes and bus stops, that have public housing, mixed income housing, that have grocery stores, libraries, schools, practical destinations. They're zoned for a lot of commercial use and residential use outside of single-family homes, and they tend to be the most unsafe all over the U.S. and in Denver. Colorado Boulevard, which is what we're on right now, Quebec, Alameda, Federal, Sheridan are nightmares, and they are—they're they're the most practical corridors, you know. For so it—it's it, a real disconnect, and so I, there are certain parts in Denver that are absolutely more walkable than other cities. But when we look at the arterial networks, that a lot of people who depend on walking, rolling, if you're using a wheelchair, biking, transit, they're nightmares.
1: Well, people will hear the traffic behind us because it's rush hour. And as you said, Jonathan, we're on Colorado Boulevard, which is a main thoroughfare here in Denver. And all around us, there are cars. Um, Not a whole lot of folks walking on the sidewalk, but there is a sidewalk.
3: Yeah, so there is a sidewalk and there are people depending on this all day long waiting for buses in this kind of in these conditions having to add extra time to their schedule to get on other side roads because they're terrified but you still have to catch that bus so you have to engage you have to at some point use this route. Colorado Boulevard is one of the most frequent bus routes uh, in the city you know and we don't have a lot of them.
1: We were talking about by design and how so many neighborhoods where we've traditionally seen uh, immigrant communities people of color low-income people are it's, it's often termed environmental racism they're pushed yes. up against environmental pollutants they've the worst air quality right. and as we are hearing very a huge lack of infrastructure for pedestrians. They're also the ones who don't have cars very often because of some of the economic factors. Um, Talk a little bit about the intersection between the current housing crisis in Denver and this lack of mobility and pedestrian access.
3: I always put it under this, this big space of social support. Like, what is helping me get to work on time? What is helping me show up with a clear mind What is helping me to just have dignity in my day-to-day? Like, if I gotta get to that appointment, so I'm thinking about people who are just facing housing challenges, but just getting every day, think that getting to that job, getting around, if you don't have a car or if you share a car or if car travel's really complicated or it's really expensive, can't afford it, whatever the, don't have your license for any number of reasons, anybody who's experiencing you know homelessness or experiencing any kind of just financial crisis and needing to get around with more support you add the transportation thing to the mix and it totally adds it stacks to the gaps in social support you're just you're and these are often things that I think just are so they don't go they're not they're not front of mind a lot of the time that it takes somebody sometimes too three hours to take how many buses where the buses can be late they may not come on time to get to the other side of the city
1: jonathan stalls was inspired to do this work around pedestrian advocacy after he and his dog took a 242 day walk across the country he writes about it in his book walk slow down wake up and connect at one to three miles per hour what reaction did you get from people as you were yes. walking across the U.S.? Like, tell us some of the stories and some of the people you met.
3: Oh, my gosh. I just, well, this is what the impetus for starting Walk to Connect after the cross-country walk. That I wasn't as deep in urban planning or pedestrian mobility work at that stage because the core for me are the benefits. The, like, that's why I care so much about this, is it like the way unhurried movement allows me to fumble into so many incredible connections and relationships with people I meet every so walking across the US I so many stories of literally stumbling across strangers now forever friends moving through Moab was uh, was one of those stories um, this is what happens when you're out walking you meet people you see somebody outside they see you outside I had a big like husky blue healer dog in a backpack and you just I look weird, my dog is intense. And you know, they're like, what are you doing? Or vice versa, I reach out and say, hey, like I'm doing this walk, especially on nights I didn't have a place to sleep. Um, I would be a little more intentional to just reach out and say, hey, like you mind if I pitch my tent on your front yard for the night? A lot of times I, it it was a no, (laughs) but a lot of times it was a yes. And then it would turn into, come on in for dinner sit on the couch hang out for the night you know what just take the guest bedroom this would happen all the time on this walk i'm sharing all kinds of things i'm sharing stories i'm getting closer to moab um, and i'm sharing things on facebook and someone finds out about my walk on facebook they see that i'm walking out there and they're just like they reach out through messenger and they're like, you're walking through here. Oh my gosh, I love hosting walkers. Um, Terry and Tibbets was an amazing host. She actually came and picked us up and brought us out to her house. Um, she, I just, I'll just never forget as an artist, I'm, I'm a creative, multidisciplinary artist, and I just love how people um, change their environments and make them theirs. And so I'll never forget walking into Terry's home and seeing these this wall of blue glass bottles. She had a big table underneath this huge tree in her front yard. We sat outside, looked through the bottles, shared stories all night. My cousin was with me because the stars were so nice. We slept on the roof. These exchanges that happen that are magical, unpredictable. Terry Ann Tibbets has been a forever friend. She connected me to a bartender in Eureka, Nevada when I was going through Nevada after walking out of Utah. And so to know that someone is waiting for you there because it's a friend of a friend. And then Terry Ann Tibbetts from Moab flies all the way to San Francisco to finish the walk with me at the end. I mean, these are the kinds of connections you make. I walked with hundreds of people on my cross country walk. And this is one of the main benefits that I am constantly bringing up in these trainings and why pedestrian mobility to me is, it's another reason why it's so important. And I talk a lot about this in the book, but it's why chapter one is walking as human dignity not just from a pedestrian standpoint, but from a human connection standpoint. When you are moving in an unhurried way, shoulder to shoulder with somebody, we're not sitting across a table. We're not as, it's not as easy to be in either or. You can move with the story that's in somebody else more naturally. I always talk about it like heart to heart, center to center. The trees are helping you breathe, the sunset is beautiful, the air helps you to like all the, all the things that are happening on the inside.
1: You can find out more about Jonathan Stahls, his book and his advocacy at his website, IntrinsicPaths.com. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Chris Clements at KSJD, Carolyn Yanis at Aspen Public Radio, Benita Lee and Jonathan Stolls for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.